Okay, and just a quick plug, if you've not yet gotten a chance to get your copy of the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes a Very Smart Couples Make, please avail yourself. Go to shoes.com. Please get yourself a copy. Highly, highly recommended. Um, I made all the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes myself just to make sure that they really worked, and they really do. They are really dumb, uh, and I can vouch for that. If you're not so uh, comfortable reading, we have the video book also. The video book plays the videos. I'll make a plug at the end for them also. But please avail yourself of them. They are on the schmooze.com. You can get them there. I highly, highly recommend it. I think you'll find it very beneficial. Okay, <clears throat> we're going to stall just one more minute because I, I do want everyone to be here at the beginning. And again, if you have any questions at any point, Please feel free to ask. Okay, let's really let's let's begin. Okay, so tonight's uh, tonight's chabura name is Matzah Amotza, and tonight's session is how to fall in love with your wife, and how to stay in love with your wife, and those might be two different uh, entities, and both are essential. Just a very quick recap. So there are three pillars to a successful marriage. There is commitment, love, and learning to live together. Commitment comes from the simple understanding that Hashem doesn't make mistakes. Hashem knows what He's doing. There may be some ups and downs. There may be some traffic along the way. There may be some blips on the radar. But Hashem knows what He's doing. And getting through this successfully and happily is clearly within the confines of what's expected. Love is the glue of the marriage. That's the relationship, everything that's happening there. And learning to live together is probably the most difficult part of a successful marriage. Because learning to live together means learning to embrace another human being who's different than I, who has a different way of doing things, a different approach. And doggone, why can't she just be normal like me? Why can't she just do things like me? And why can't she just finally get it right? And that attitude, which we all come into the marriage with, because even though we don't mean to, and even though we may seem flexible, and we might be, but we have a natural prejudice and adjusting and getting accustomed and making room for another human being and accepting that the reason why she acts that way is because that's the way Hashem made her. And the reason she feels that way is because that's the way Hashem made her. And getting comfortable with those ideas and getting really embracing them takes a long time. And learning to live together is not such an easy thing. Now, this evening's session is going to focus on really the middle, middle pillar, and really more from our perspective, the male's perspective, than the female. Again, love is the glue of a marriage. And let me begin with the Hollywood myth. Here we go. The myth of Hollywood, and really the two parts of it. The first myth of Hollywood goes something like this. Boy meets girl, falls madly, deeply in love. They look into each other's eyes, and the violins start playing, and the birds start chirping, and then everything is beautiful, and life is beautiful ever after. Until they fall out of love. You fall into love. You fall out of love. It's a mystery of life. Love comes. Love goes. That's just the way it is. And that is the very first myth of Hollywood, that love comes, love goes. It's just a natural sort of thing. You know, you fell into love naturally. You fall out of love naturally. It just happens. These things just occur. No rhyme, no reason, certainly no control, no ability to change things. It's just that's the way of nature. It's just the mystery of the human race. I'll call it the myth of Hollywood, but it's the lie of Hollywood. And that's number one. And then there's a second one. Sometimes you'll see people who are happily married, 
And sometimes you see people who are not happily married. And now we come to the second Hollywood myth, and that is some people get lucky. You know why it is that some people have good marriages? Because they got lucky and they found the right one. They got lucky, they found the right one. So, and because they found the right one, me, on the other hand, unfortunately, and I, I didn't get lucky. Never. I got stuck. I got the short end of the stick. Unfortunately, I got what I got. Okay, now, these I call the myths of Hollywood. And again, let's understand exactly. Number one, people fall in love. And if we're out of love, number two, people get lucky. So let me begin with the first very imperative, vital understanding. Love doesn't happen. Love is built. Love is something you work on, and love is something you focus on. Infatuation happens. We discussed that already. Infatuation is that instant sort of like, woo, sense. Infatuation blinds. Infatuation is that chemical release. Infatuation is instant. It doesn't take any work. But infatuation has a shelf life. It could be that that's what Hollywood is referring to. What they call love may be just their understanding of infatuation, and that is true. Infatuation comes, infatuation goes. But infatuation is nothing other than a temporary state, a temporary state that Hashem created to allow couples to begin the adjustment, to begin the process. Some couples are very infatuated. Some couples are not infatuated at all. But it is not love. The very first of the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make is mistaking infatuation for love. Infatuation doesn't take work. Love sure does. Infatuation is instant. Love takes a long time. And one of the biggest differences is infatuation blinds you. Infatuation is she's perfect. He's perfect. It's going to be great forever and ever. We're going to live in peace, harmony, and happiness. And love doesn't blind you. I'm fully aware of my spouse's strengths and her shortcomings, but I love her anyway. I accept her. I embrace her as she is. I'm a human being with flaws. She's a human being with flaws. I'm fully aware of them and that I accept her anyway. And love is something that requires an awful lot of work. Now, and we discussed briefly that there are tools that bond. What I'm going to do this evening, hopefully, is spend a little bit more time on some of them. The first is attraction, infatuation, romantic love, physical intimacy, respect, appreciation, friendship. In the book, and the ten really dumb mistakes, I spend a lot more time on a number of these because we don't have time really in each session to go through them. Please get the book. Please read the book. Read it a second time. If you don't read the book, read the video book. You go to theshmuz.com. You get both. But anyway, here's the goal this evening. Our goal is really quite simple. To learn to be in love with your spouse and to make it easy for your spouse to be in love with you. But that's the goal. And for you to be and stay in love with your spouse and make it easy for your spouse to be in love with you. Let's begin with step one. Step one is a very, very important concept that Chazal share with us. It's actually a pasuk in Mishlei. As water reflects, so too does the heart of man. And Rashi says it means literally, almost against your will. If I smile at you, if I present a smiling countenance, almost against your will, you almost don't have a choice but to smile back. And the opposite, if I frown, if I give you a dirty look, you almost don't have free will any longer, but you'll reflect back. Whatever I put out to you, you're going to reflect back. Like water reflects, so too does the human heart. And this is a tremendous, tremendous concept. I either like or dislike you, oftentimes based simply 
on your feelings towards me. If I see that you like me, I like you. If I see that you don't like me, I don't like you. And this is what I call the mirror of the relationship. Every relationship, but especially marriage, is a mirror. What you put into the mirror, you're going to get back. If you're giving acceptance, embracing, love, if you're being a good friend, if you're being supportive, that's what you're going to get back. And every time you interact with your spouse, it is exactly that. It reflects back and forth. And I cannot tell you how many times guys or women say to me, she's such a bleep, 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 he's such a blah, blah, blah. And I just would beg for them to look in the mirror that they're looking into. I know he's a narcissist and he's self-centered and I got, I got, but, but what face are you putting into that mirror? How polite, how sweet, how nice are you? And I guarantee there's plenty of blame to go around, but this is the concept. And whatever you put into that mirror is what you get back. And if you would like to be happily married, you're going to try your best to put in a smiling face, a happy face, and you're going to try to treat your wife as well as you can. And gentlemen, let me make it very clear. If you treat her like a queen, she will treat you like a king. It's almost something she can't help. Now, she may not do everything the way you like, and she may not speak the way you like, and she may still have some habits that bother you. But if you treat her like a queen, she can almost can't help but treat you like a king. However, if you treat her like a servant, she will treat you like a slave. And even though that may sound obvious, we make this mistake all the time and we miss this. And really, here's the problem. And the problem is you can't fake it. You see, you're putting that face into the mirror. And the way you address your spouse, the way you speak to your spouse, if you're supportive, if you're happy, if you're constantly a friend, that's what your spouse sees and that's what you're going to get back. If you're critical, if you're not so nice, if you're constantly finding fault or whatever it may be, well, guess what? You're going to find back exactly what you're putting in. You're going to get back. And what we're going to focus on this evening is putting the right things into the mirror so that hopefully you get them back because you can't fake the feelings. You can't say, I'll pretend I'm in love with my wife. And you can't say, I'm going to pretend I'm super attracted to her. You have to be in love with your wife. You have to be attracted to your wife. And you have to really work on these things. So we're going to focus this evening on building love in your marriage. And we're going to start with some of the tools that bond. So let's begin with the following. Um, all of these are tools that bring to the goal of love. But before we even really begin the process, I need to make one point very, very clear. And these are tools to get to this point. All of these things, attraction, infatuation, romantic love, touch and physical intimacy, respect, appreciation, friendship, these are all driving forces that bring a couple closer, but the goal is love. What I mean by that is physical intimacy is an integral part of a success, successful marriage. It creates a bond. It creates attachment. It creates a connection. But it's only a tool to be used. So too is attraction. Attraction is a powerful tool, but it's a tool to be used. And one of the mistakes that people make is they mistake the driving forces for the end goal. And the end goal is love. What's love? So I'll give you the, um, I'll give you the COVID test. The COVID test, often many couples found the COVID test to be a very, very difficult test. And I don't mean the COVID test that you went to the urgent care for. I mean the COVID test when you were locked into very 
small quarters with your spouse. And for many people, it's very difficult. And I'd like to share with you, I had, my wife, we had a great time. You know what it's like to be with your best friend and no one else there. And you're alone. And it was a macha, it was a pleasure. It was great. It was wonderful. Now, and gentlemen, let me be very clear. We are married now, Baruch Hashem, 36 years. At that point, I guess maybe 35 years, 34 years, whatever it may be. And it was a lot of work, an awful lot of work to get there. And I don't know if I would have had the same response had I had it been after the first five years or ten years of marriage. But I can tell you, once you get the hang of this, and once you know what you're doing, it's your best friend that you're spending all day with. It's your best friend that you're with, and you're supportive, you care about her, you want to help her, and she wants to help you. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, harmonious relationship. That's the COVID test, and that's to be alone with your best friend. And it's something that requires a lot of work. So, and before we work on the tools that bond, I want to ask this very, very important question. All of these tools are goals to get to something called love. The question is, what is love? What is love? Now, you know, everybody kind of recognizes it when you see it. But if I ask you to define it, if I ask you to tell me what it is, I think very few people can define it. As a matter of fact, I'll show you what's interestingly almost a contradiction. We spoke a lot about using romantic love. It's a husband's job, a husband's responsible to romance his wife. I said it again and again, and I probably should say it again now because I can't say it enough times. And gentlemen, you will be so much happier. Your marriage will be so much better. Your life will be so much improved if you'll just focus on romancing your wife. That means it's your job to buy the love notes, the gifts, the cards, your job to plan the date, your job to plan the mini vacations. It's your job to let your wife know in word, deed, and action that you cherish her, that you love her, but you have to be romantic. You have to do all the things you have to do, um, and you really have to write love notes. Um, if you have to go to chat GBT to get it written for you, do it, but just make sure that you do it. It is your responsibility to romance your wife. But gentlemen, this is the point. Romantic love is a tool. It's not the end goal. The husband is responsible to do it, but I'd like to show you the difference between romantic love and real love. Romantic love is possessive. Possessive means you are to me and to no one else. Almost by definition, romantic love is extremely, extremely possessive. Now make the mistake, it's good, proper, and holy, and it's a very important tool to be used but it's almost the opposite of love. You see, love is I want to give, I want to share, I want to take care of. Romantic love may lead to that, but romantic love is possessive. No one else can have her. She's mine. I want her. And again, it's a proper tool to use. It's a great tool to use. And please use it, but understand that it's a driving force. It's a tool. It's not the end goal. The end goal is actual love. And what that means in plain language is a deep, real connection. But before we really clearly define what love is, we need to understand what it isn't. And let me begin with a very, very important observation. It's a pasuk that we often say, but is very, very misunderstood. And you should love your neighbor as you do yourself. Now forget the real pasuk shot in the pasuk. I want to make a very important observation. The Ahavata I don't know who I heard this in name of, but whoever said this is a gone, and it's a beautiful, beautiful concept. 
Love your neighbor like yourself. Almost as much as you love yourself, you should love your neighbor. Meaning, it's a given that you love you. Of course you love yourself. I want you to love your neighbor as much as you do yourself. Maybe as much. Maybe close to as much. But the point is, it's a given that you love yourself. And gentlemen, listen very carefully to what I'm saying to you. Self-love is the basis of psychological health. Self-love is a prerequisite for all relationships. And the only way you could have self-love is if you have self-acceptance. And it is your responsibility to love yourself and to accept yourself, and it's your responsibility to work on that. And what I mean in plain, simple language is marriage is an institution, but it's not a hospital. Marriage will not cure all that ails you. A lot of people in the single say, okay, great, I'll get married and all my problems will disappear. Marriage will not cure depression, OCD, anxiety, low self-esteem, poor self-image. There's only one thing in the world that marriage will cure. That only thing is being single. The one and only thing that marriage cures is being single. But other than that, nothing else. And this is the point. Your mental health is your responsibility. And if you come into the marriage with stuff, it's your responsibility to take care of that stuff. And don't go blaming it on your spouse. And don't go saying, if she was better, it'd be great. It's not the point. And again, many times I've dealt with couples where I'll say to both of them, this is not a you problem. It's a he problem or she problem. And this has nothing to do with the marriage. I mean, it affects the marriage in a very real way, but it's not a marital issue. It's a you issue. And it is your responsibility to take care of your mental health and your responsibility to deal with your issues, your stuff. And you have to show up as the best version of you as you can. It's after you love yourself. That's when you can begin working on the concept of loving someone else. But let's return to that issue. What is love? What is it? So, Obviously, love is an inner condition. It's a feeling. It's an inner sense. But how do you define it? So let's begin with some observations about love that may help us understand what it is. If you see a mother with a newborn baby, you very well know that the mother is deeply concerned for the good of the baby. Now, you probably know that the mother loves the baby. The mother might give up everything for the baby, certainly her sleep, certainly her health, maybe even our life. The mother certainly seems to be very devoted to the baby. But how do we determine if she actually loves the baby or not? Okay, so the first thing we're going to look for is how she acts towards the baby. If she feeds the baby, if she changes the baby's diaper, if she comforts the baby, if she's doing all of those things, we have the first indication that she probably loves the baby. If she's showing care for the baby, if she cares for the baby, very likely she loves the baby. But care is only one part of it. What if we see a mother who cares for the baby and then at a certain point says, you know what, I've had enough of this, I'm going to take a day off. And she's out of there, she leaves the baby unattended and just goes off, whatever it may be, she plays golf, she tennis, goes swimming, whatever, she leaves the baby unattended. What would you say? And you would say the mother might love herself, but she sure does not love the baby. And that brings us to the second criteria of love, responsible. You see, it's not enough that I care for the baby. I'm also responsible for the good of the baby, responsible for the welfare. I feel a sense of responsibility. And there's one more aspect that's equally important. 
sometimes you'll hear of parents, or maybe you know of parents, who do everything in their power to shoehorn their children into their image of what their child is supposed to be. Now, I want to be very clear. The role of a parent is to foster the good of the child. And it means like a diamond in the rough, the parent is supposed to look at the child and say, what is the nature of the child? What are the tendencies of the child? How can I best bring out the best in this child? Not to form the child in an image of me, not to form the child in an image of what I think the child should be, and to look at the child and ask myself the question, what are the tendencies and nature, the essence of this child? How could I bring out the best of this child? And that requires the third criteria for love, and that's respect. You see, if I respect the child as an individual, I'm asking myself, what is the best for the child? If I'm viewing the child as an extension of me or a way to prop up my social image or a way to gain something, then I will shoehorn the baby into my image of what the baby should be. But if I fundamentally respect the baby as an individual, I will bring out the best in the baby. And these are the three elements of love. Number one, care. And a deep sense of caring about the other person. And number two, I'm responsible for the welfare, for the good of that other person. And number three, I respect that person as an individual, not for what I can get out of him or her, and not for what they can do for me, but I respect them as an individual. I respect them as a person. However, not all love is the same. A man may have many different relationships. A man may be a father, an uncle, a brother, a friend, a son. He has many different relationships. But marriage is a very, very unique relationship out of all of them. As much as any relationship will have love in it, the marriage has a unique kind of love. Number one, it's a pasuk in Chumash. Alkin yazov ishes, aviv imo. A man shall leave his father and his mother, vedavak the ishto, and cling to his wife. And they become one entity. You look in the Ramban on that Pasuk, and the Ramban says, husbands and wives view themselves as closer than any other relationship. They view themselves as one, and one entity, and one unit. You see, with any other person, you may share a part of your life, but with your spouse, you share your entire life. There's no relationship that's closer, and no relationship that's more supportive and no relationship where you're more equally mutually dependent. But the real distinction between the love in a marriage and the love of any other relationship is not just that. The single biggest difference is that the love is not guaranteed. Almost no matter what your parents do, you love your parents. Okay, there's some parents who are better, some parents aren't as good. Okay, I got it. Some children are easier to parent, some children are more difficult. Some brothers are easier to get along with. Some sisters are easier. Some are harder. But irregardless of what they're doing, there's a profound sense of love, attachment, certainly responsible care, certainly respect. However, in marriage, it's a little bit different. In marriage, that love waxes and wanes. And that love either increases or decreases. And that love in marriage is dramatically dependent on the relationship. And that is the single most critical difference. Any other relationship that you have is sort of static, a little bit more, a little bit less. 
but you love your parents, you love your brother, you love your uncle, you love your son, that's there. A little more, a little less, they can do better things, worse things, I got it. But the bottom line is, what it is is what it is. It's only your wife and your wife alone and that that relationship is so fickle, it either increases and increases and increases or it decreases. But one thing for sure, it's ever-changing. And sometimes in the same day. And sometimes in the same half hour. One moment you can be deeply in love and next minute you're furious because the relationship is very, very fickle. And would you like to know why? And it's very critical that you know why because only when you know why can you understand why the relationship requires so much work. You see, in a marriage, we are mutually dependent. And each of us is very, very sensitive. A husband and wife each have expectations, wishes, desires, and we have very real needs. And unfortunately, in the busyness of life with what happens, invariably there are going to be some needs that are met and some needs that aren't met. Some expectations that will be realized, some that aren't. And invariably they're going to be bruised shins, scraped knees, and hurt feelings. And the minute that that happens, the minute one of my expectations or needs aren't met, there's a profound sense within me, my spouse doesn't care about me. My spouse doesn't meet my needs. And what that means is my spouse really cared about me. If she was really concerned about my needs, she would meet my needs. It must be that she really doesn't care about me. And the reason why all of this comes to bear is because the simple reality is we are very connected as a couple and very connected as one unit, and we are vulnerable. And when you're vulnerable, it's invariable that it's going to happen. She's going to say, he's going to say, it's one time it's my fault, one time it's her fault. I didn't realize, she didn't realize, but before, you know, words are said, things are said, and unfortunately, there's a great amount of hurt. And that's okay as long as the relationship is intact. And the stronger the relationship, A, the more you have going for you, and B, the stronger the relationship, the easier it is to repair, and the better off you are. Invariably, they're going to be hurt feelings. Invariably, there are going to be things, and you're going to have to apologize. You're going to have to realize what you've done wrong. She's going to have to apologize. That's part of the game. And as long as the relationship itself is powerfully intact, you guys are good. And to do that, we have to work on the relationship and again, the primary responsibility of a husband is working on romancing his wife, but how do you stay in love with your wife? So number one, the very first tool that bonds from a male perspective is something called attraction. You should be powerfully attracted to your wife. And your wife should be beautiful to you. You should be attracted to your wife. And you should feel a very real sense of being pulled towards your wife. Now, with that being said, let me share with you a story. A number of years ago, I got a call from a young man. Rabbi Schaefer, can you help me? What's up? And my wife, I don't know, she's she's not pretty. So what do you mean? I don't know, faces to this, to that. I'm just, I'm, not I'm just not attracted to her. I said, okay, how long are you married? She, he said, about six months. And I was a little curious. I mean, you, you, you dated her, right? And when you were dating her, was she attractive? Yeah. When you were dating her, was a face to this, to that? No. So there was something that didn't add up, so I did a little bit more digging in, and I made the great discovery. Do you know why he didn't find his wife attractive? 
because he was spending about an hour a day on his phone watching stuff that is uh, highly inappropriate. So if you say you're not attracted to your wife, the first thing I would say to a guy is, are your eyes where they're supposed to be? And the goal here is to be attracted, to desire your wife, to lust your wife, to find your wife to be the most beautiful woman in the world. Now, hopefully you're going to say to me, how I wish that could be, but how am I going to do that? How in the world am I going to accomplish that? So let me share with you one rule, and it's only one rule when it comes to this. Rule one, rule two, one, three, and rule four, because it's all one, is no outlets other than your wife. No pornography, no gazing, no fantasizing, nothing other than your wife. Well, how am I going to accomplish that? And I want to share with you your so that's so powerful that it can change your marriage, change your life, and make you into a happy person. Here we go. Are you ready? And I'm going to teach you how to buy your freedom. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to claim it's me, but it's not me. It's a Sefer Echinuch. And let's carefully listen to what the Sefer Echinuch tells us. The Torah gave us a commandment for one year. A husband is supposed to be with his wife, and he's supposed to make her happy during that year. And during that time, he's absolved from all communal responsibilities. He doesn't go to war. He doesn't do the normal responsibilities of a person. He's totally supposed to spend as much time as humanly possible with his wife. Now, why is this? Sefer explains. And because Hashem commanded the Chosen and Kal to be together, he shouldn't go anywhere else, he shouldn't have any other interests. Rather, he should sit with her an entire year from the Nesuin. Why? And because Nus is to Evahulafanav. Illicit relationships are disgusting to Hashem. Therefore, Hashem commanded us that a woman should sit with her husband for one year. For one year, he should be alone with her and listen to these words. And that his nature should become accustomed to her. And to find her to be appealing to him. And to place her image and everything that she does in his heart. This is the punchline. Until to his nature becomes any other woman. Whatever any other woman does is strange. <coughs> You're supposed to spend a year with your wife and your wife alone because you're supposed to put into your brain, this is how a woman does things. And this is how a woman walks. This is how a woman talks. This is how a woman dresses. This is how a woman looks. This is a woman. Basically, you're supposed to spend a year focusing your eyes on your wife so that you become accustomed to it, so it becomes emblazoned in your brain. This is a woman, and only this is a woman. I'm supposed to see my wife as this is the way a woman stands, the way she'll depend, the way she breathes, the way she reads, looks, eats, until any other woman is foreign, like, ugh, attracted to that, that foreign thing. Imagine you go to the zoo and see an orangutan. What, you want me to, an orangutan, a monkey, whatever? What's wrong with you? You're supposed to train your eye to see your wife as attractive and no other woman as attractive. Everything else is foreign, strange, and unattractive. As the Sefer Chinuch says, every other woman is not a woman. Gentlemen, do you hear what he's saying? Now, I will grant you that in our current times, this is a mighty grave challenge. And there's never been a generation like this where there's been this much temptation. And you can't avoid it. Wherever you go, in the street, in the car, wherever, wherever you are, 
and you're bombarded, bombarded, bombarded. But let me at least explain, let's at least understand the principle that the Sefer Chinuch is teaching us. You see, desire is inborn. Within the human is desire. That's instinctive, it's natural. There's nothing you're going to do to change that. And you work on Shmir Sinai from today till you're 85 years old, you're not going to change that. But what you desire is learnt. And what you desire is something you train yourself in. And if you're looking at all the women all day long, at this one, at that one, at that one, and this one, well, guess what? And that's what you're training your mind to see as attractive. And you're training your mind to see this and that and that and that. And I guarantee you'll never be satisfied with your wife. It is a wise man who trains his eyes to see his wife and only his wife as attractive. But that means you have to actually work on it. And the first kumvase part is you take an image of your wife and emblazon it in your brain. And you say to yourself again and again, my wife is beautiful and my wife is attractive. I'm attracted to my wife. I desire my wife. I want my wife. It is a wise idea to put a picture of your wife on your phone. And certainly when she calls, and certainly to have it when you go around the day. But what you're supposed to be doing is training your eye to see and my wife is attractive and only my wife is attractive. And gentlemen, I'll let you in on a little secret. Especially during intimate relations, the more you can emblazon your wife's image in your mind. And you have to bring up the image. And you have to see an image of your wife and bring it up and think and dwell and dwell and dwell. What I'm saying to you is the opposite of what naturally happens to most men. And most men, they're not bad guys, but they go on the street, they see this one, they see that one, they see this one, and all day long they're fantasizing. All day long they're fantasizing about other women. Well, guess what? By definition, your wife is not going to be attracted to you. You're not going to be attracted to her. Why? And Because by definition, when you're looking at other women, you're seeing other women, and you're seeing them as desirous and desirable, and what you're doing to yourself is you're training yourself that those are attractive women, and that's what I want, that's what I desire. You come home, and guess what? Uh, you know, huh, what, what I got here at home, this is that. What's this? And it's a wise man who trains himself in the opposite. You train yourself to see your wife as beautiful. You have an image of her in your mind, and you think on it, and you dwell on it, and you think and think and think until it becomes natural, until it becomes instinctive. And by the way, the biggest compliment to your wife is if you actually find her attractive and you let her know. And maybe the biggest insult to your wife is when you look at other women with desire, and uh, I got some bad news here, she's going to know. But gentlemen, this is the point. It's got to be something that you work on. It's not natural. It's far easier to just let your eyes wander and be attracted to this one, to this one, to that one, and in a very short time, you're not going to find your wife to be the pull and the driving force that attracts you. Well, guess what? You have a Bechira. And the first part of the Bechira is to bring up an image in your mind's eye of your wife and again and again view it and see it and see it and dwell on it and again, especially when you're intimate, but all the time. It's a good idea to do bring up an image and you say to yourself, my wife is beautiful. This is the one that Hashem gave me. This is the right one for me. This is the one I want. You see, what you're doing is you're using desire as a tool that bonds. Desire is instinctive. Desire will either pull you or you use it as a powerful horse to pull you to where you want to be. You see, desire is going to pull, no matter what it's going to pull. And the question is, does it pull you away from your wife or do you channel it to pull you towards your wife? 
But gentlemen, that means, again, no outlets other than your wife. That means no porn, no gazing, no fantasizing. And that means it's got to be something that you're working on. The more you focus on your wife, and I'm here, I'm talking about specifically attraction, her beauty, her figure, her face, how she looks to you. And the more you focus on your wife, the better your marriage will be, the happier you'll be, and the holier you'll be. Hashem doesn't want a human being not to have desire. Hashem gave us desires. The goal of the human being is to channel those desires and to marshal them, to use them like a mighty, powerful thoroughbred. Out of control, the horse races off in stampedes. But if you control the horse and you use it for your benefit, you use it for what you want it to do, it's a very powerful tool. But, gentlemen, let me be very clear for a minute here. I'll give you a personal guarantee. If you married the most beautiful woman in the world, Kuli Amalopligi, you married Esther Amalka, sorry, Nino, put together more beautiful than any woman ever on the face of the planet. Okay, here's a very simple observation. There will always be other women out there. And no matter what, no matter how beautiful, no matter how attractive your wife is, I guarantee there will be other women that are either more alluring, more enticing, more appealing, more attractive, or whatever. And even if you married a beauty, there are other ways, there are other ways, of, well, this kind of hair, that kind of hair, this kind of thing, that kind of, there are always differences. And always prettier and skinnier and taller and younger and shorter, whatever it may be, than your wife. And I guarantee, unless you train yourself to see your wife as a woman and no one else as a woman, you're going to be forever pulled, but pulled away from your wife. And instead of using it for a powerful tool, it's going to destroy your marriage, going to destroy your holiness, and certainly going to destroy your happiness. In plain, simple language, you ever hear the expression, the man had eyes for his wife and his wife only? It was not said by a man. I've never met a man yet who has eyes for his wife and his wife only. I've met many men who worked on it, who worked on it very, very diligently, and trained themselves to see their wife and their wife only as attractive, but it was a tremendous battle and a tremendous amount of work, and after years and years, they trained themselves. But if you think you're going to marry the most beautiful woman in the world, and then that's it, I don't have eyes for anybody else, I got bad news for you. You're going to get married, and it's Hashem, and she'll be beautiful, and there'll be other women who are attractive or whatever, whatever the enticement is, whatever the beauty is, and the work is to work on yourself. But the work here is to use the tool of attraction to pull you closer. Physical intimacy is a powerful tool, but you have to use it properly. Attraction is a powerful tool, but you have to use it properly. I'm talking about using attraction as a tool that I should meant it to be, and that is the work. The work is to train yourself to see your wife and your wife only as beautiful, and it requires a lot of work. If you don't do it, you're going to be constantly pulled away. If you do it, it's a powerful force that draws you closer. Okay, but let's move up the scale for a minute. We have the next one is touch and physical intimacy. Now, we're not going to deal with physical intimacy in this session per se, and we'll see maybe later on, but let's talk about something called touch. Gentlemen, let me be very, very clear. There are many, many things that will pull you guys apart. First of all, the busyness of life, and then there are responsibilities, and there are things. And if everything else is finally in order, there are things called kids. And I guarantee kids are going to make it very difficult for you guys as a couple, as a unit, to be connected, to be bonded, because children demand time, demand attention, 
and children compete dramatically for romance. You have to set boundaries. It's imperative that you set boundaries. It's imperative that you set Tuesday night and mommy and Abba's night out. We take many vacations. The bedroom is sacrosanct. That means children are not invited in there. They're not allowed in there. There have to be very real boundaries. But despite all that, there'll be many, many things that will pull you apart. To allow us to connect and to allow us to bond and to allow a marriage to flourish, Hashem created many tools. Attraction is one of them. Let's discuss the next one called touch. Now, touch is a powerful, powerful tool. But gentlemen, listen carefully to what I'm saying to you. And touch and physical intimacy are not the same thing. And touch is not only to be used as a tool to get to physical intimacy, and certainly not only in the bedroom. Touch as a sign of affection, as a gesture of affection, as something that builds a connection. And it means everything from holding hands to an arm around the shoulder to even just touch, just, just touching. Just touching your, your spouse, just in a way that you don't touch other people. But I don't mean in a sexual way. I don't mean in a way of lust. Lust is fine and it's good and it's healthy and you should use it in your marriage properly. But I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about using touch as a sign of affection, as a way of building affection. And let me sort of touch on a very, very, excuse my pun there, on a very sore point. Many, many women complain. He only touches me when he wants sex. That's the only time he touches me. If he doesn't want to go to bed, he doesn't, doesn't touch me. And gentlemen, I would like to share with you, if that is your wife's sense of things, you blew it. You blew it on two counts. <clears throat> Number one, you're not using a powerful tool that bonds. Touch means signs of affection, signs of endearment, holding hands, arm around the shoulder. Now, again, if you have kids, you got to be careful. You can't do it. But <clears throat> certainly when you're alone, when you're separate, you spend time together and you touch. Touch means, again, everything from holding a hand to just, just touching. When you're speaking, you, just, you reach out, you touch, because your relationship to your spouse is different than a relationship to any other human being on the planet, and you want to make that clear. You want to make that vivid. You want to make that very, very obvious. And you are responsible for the romance in marriage, and you are responsible for the signs of love and affection, and, and this is a critical area not to miss. And touch is an independent piece not related to physical intimacy. But just because it's not very well understood, let me make this very, very clear. Men and women typically end up in the bedroom for the opposite reasons. In a healthy marriage, what happens like this, and the man typically has a very strong desire for physical intimacy. He knows that uh, his wife will only join him if he shows signs of endearment of affection. And he'll do that, but this is the point. For a man, physical intimacy is a powerful tool to build a connection and to build a bond. What brings him into the bedroom is physical desire. And once he is intimate with his wife, that creates the bond. It creates an attachment. But you see, the way it works is sex leads to love. In a man's world, he has a natural desire. And when he is with his wife, that creates the bond of love, it creates the attachment. And again, it's very healthy, it's very good, it's a tool that Hashem gave us, and use it. I'm not telling you not to, absolutely use it, 100%. But the point is, in a man's world, it's the desire for physical intimacy 
that leads him to be with his wife, and that leads him to love. But typically for a woman, it's the exact opposite. Typically, it's only when a woman feels that her husband loves her, and when she feels that she loves her husband, that's when she wants to be physically intimate with him. Typically, with a woman, she needs to know that she's cherished, and she needs to know that she's loved. When she has that, then in a healthy woman, she'll have desire, and some women more, some less. But you see, almost invariably, on a regular if you're new to this thing called marriage, you're not married yet, you may not know what I'm talking about. And that any me, man who's been married for a while knows the amount of time that women just aren't interested. They're not interested in intimacy. And I can't tell you how many times I get guys who complain. I had one guy who said to me, Rebbe, can, can I get a pelegish? What do you want a pelegish for? My wife never wants to be with me. I don't understand her. I don't understand her. And the guy didn't have to say another word. I knew already what was going on, but I asked to speak to her, his wife. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize the minute a woman doesn't feel loved, if she doesn't feel cherished, she doesn't want to be with her husband. Some women will do it anyway, and some won't. But one thing for sure, if you want to be physically intimate with your wife, he's smart about it. Take her out, spend time with her, romance her, and she'll be much, 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 much more interested. And what gets her interested typically is when she feels love. It's a love for her that leads to the desire for sexual intimacy. In a proper marriage, hopefully both parties are doing their part. The husband is romancing his wife, buying the gifts, the cards, the love notes, the dates, and everything. As a result of that, his wife knows that she's cherished. He ends up wanting to go to bed because he has a physical desire. It builds the bond of love for him. She wants to go to bed because she loves her husband. It builds a bond for her also, and everything works together in peace and harmony. The problem is when things break down and he stops doing her his part, she then stops doing her part, and before you know it, you have a situation where things get very, very out of control. Gentlemen, be wise about this. Don't be foolish. Use the tools that Hashem gave you. Use the tools. Hashem wants us to succeed. Hashem wants us to be happily married. But you have to use all of the tools that bond. I only had a chance to go through some of them here. You go through the book. You go through the video book. You'll see more of them. But you have to use all of the tools that bond. Hashem gave us many, many tools. Attraction, infatuation, romantic love, physical intimacy, respect, appreciation, friendship. You have to use all of them. Attraction is a powerful tool. But attraction means you have to learn to see your wife as beautiful and only your wife is beautiful. It's a powerful thing that will bring you closer to her. It's not the end goal. The end goal is love. All of these are driving forces. All of these are tools that bond. And the end goal is real love. Real love is care, commitment, responsible, sense of respect. Real love is an inner condition of wanting to give, wanting to help, caring deeply for the other person. These are tools. They're very important tools. But again, romantic love, which is the main tool a husband should be using regularly, is very much the opposite of giving. Use it, but understand what it is. It's a tool. Attraction is a tool, but you have to work on it. You can't just let your eyes wander. You have to work on it and use it. And touch is something that's very, very important to use. But you have to use it. You use it as a tool. It works. It bonds. It connects. And all of these are tools that bond. And all of these are things that connect. And you have to work on all three pillars. And you have to work on the commitment. You have to say to yourself again and again, Hashem brought the right one to me, the perfect one, the perfect match for me. 
You have to work on the love in the marriage because the love is the glue of the marriage. And you have to work on living together and because learning to live together is not so simple. Embracing another human being who does things differently than I and not trying to change her, not trying to mold her into the image of what a woman should be like because I got it right, but accepting her as she is takes an awful lot of work. You do these things and you use the tools that bond and you get closer and closer. It'll be ups and downs. You're going to have mishaps and things happen, and you apologize, you kiss and make up, you continue, you go through life, and you get closer and closer, and you learn what not to do, you learn what to do, you start avoiding the 10 really dumb mistakes that very small couples make, and you get closer and closer. I want to close out the series with a very important Chazal, wisdom from Chazal. And let's just read a Pasuk, and this Rashi is so eye-opening and gives us a tremendous insight. Vayisa eskolo vayevch. Yaakov Avinu comes to the well, and he sees his Rachel. And Rachel Imenu, he sees her, and after greeting her, he raises his voice in a cry, but aloud, out loud, he cries out loud. And why did Yaakov Avinu cry at this moment? He finally meets Rachel, and why is he crying? This is his beloved, this is the one that he knew he was destined to marry, and this is the mother of the Klaius, or the mother of his children, why is he now crying? So Rashi brings two pshatim, two reasons. Reason number one, Vayev, he cried, and he should be a daimarikanias, he came empty-handed. He left his father's house with great wealth. Alifaz was sent by Esau to chase down Yaakov. Yaakov willingly gave all of his wealth because otherwise Alifaz had no way to fulfill his father's command. So Yaakov came to his Beshert, and came to his Kala empty-handed. He came to his Kala empty-handed, he began crying, Eliezer, the, the, the slave of my father, when he came to my father betrothed, he came with ten camels laden, and I come empty-handed, he began crying and crying and crying. And gentlemen, there's an important lesson to learn from this Rashi. It's called class respect, dignity. Believe me, Rachel was not into trinkets. She was not into glittery gold. She was one of the emos. But it's not classy. What do you mean? She waited. She waited. This is Yaakov Avinu. Leah's eyes were red. Leah's eyes were red because she thought she'd end up with Esau. She cried and cried and cried, and Rachel knew that she was to get Yaakov, and finally meets her, and he comes in at the end. The big deal. What do I care? I get him. Who cares about the trinkets? The answer is not class. It's not dignified. You don't come to the kala with empty hands. It's not nice. You have to remember you're dealing with a bas yisrael. Your wife, your kala, is a bas yisrael, and you have to be very dignified, very respectful. You have to treat her like a queen, even if you feel she's not acting like a queen to you. Even if you feel she's not, you have to act to her like a queen, and that's your job. You treat her like a queen, she'll treat you like a king. Treat her like a servant, and you're going to pay the price. And But this is the first reason why Yaakovino cried, because he came empty-handed, it's not classy, it's not dignified, not respectful. How could I come to the collar with empty hands? But let's look at the second reason. The second reason is if he should suffer Baruch HaKodesh. At this moment, he saw Baruch HaKodesh in the Vua type of state. She'ena nechnesis And Rachel is not going to be buried with him. And Rachel is going to be buried on the way. And because many generations later, the Klayosul are going to need her to call out to Hashem to save us when we're sent into exile. So she was not to be buried in the Maris of Machpelah. 
And Yaakov, you know, at this moment saw Baruch HaKodesh that Rachel was not to be buried with with him. And therefore he raised his voice crying, Oyvei! Gentlemen, you get the point? When you marry your spouse, it's for eternity. In this world, in the world to come, you are together. And it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime together. And it's a lifetime of dignity, of respect, of love. And Yaakov you know, felt there was something lacking. The, the, the marriage isn't complete. We're not going to be buried together. We're not going to be together in that state of existence. And it was something lacking. Believe me, they'll be together in Gan And Tchiyas and Mason will be together. But for a temporary time, in the Kvura, they weren't together. And Yaakov you know, raised his voice in a, in, a, in a cry. Why? Because that's a romantic person. It's a marriage in one unit, bonded, connected together. We're supposed to be together for life. Gentlemen, this is the episode. Love doesn't happen. Love is built. I'll share with you one last story. And Rebbe's in Palm. When she heard the terrible news that her husband, Rav Palm, the Shashiva, the Tzal, passed away, she was clearly very, very broken. Amana. And someone came to the apartment and saw that she was ironing. And first of all, she was in Aninas. And second, why are you ironing? And they asked the Rebbeson, well, maybe we could help. She said, no, 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 I'm, it's the Rishivist Tachrichim. She wanted to make sure that the Tachrichim that her husband was buried in would be neat, would be proper, so she was ironing them. That is dignity, that's class, that's devotion. It's not about me, it's about my... That devotion and that love is something that takes years and years and years. You use the tools that bond you work on things, you continue to grow, you daven, Hashem helps, and eventually you get there, and Hashem grants you much success, much shalom bias, and don't forget to daven, 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 and Hashem will guide you, much siyat Rishmaya. Okay, now, if anyone has questions, please feel free to ask, we'll take a few questions, again, my voice is shot typically uh, as usual, but if you have a question or two, please feel free to type it in, or you can raise your hand if you'd like to ask it by raising your hand, you certainly could do that as well. If you're shy, you could type it. If you're very shy, I could rest my voice. And that's even better. Okay. Excellent. No one has questions. Beautiful. I guess it means it's all clear. Or I put everybody to sleep. Uh, either one is, uh, well, one's better than the other. But, um, okay. Right. Okay. Um Okay, if anyone has questions, please feel free uh, to ask them. If not, we're good. We are good. We are good. All right, I want to wish everyone a tremendous amount of Seat HaShemaya. Use the tools. Use the book. Use the use the, the many, many things on com. Many other books also, but you got to work on it. Work on it. Hashem helps. Hashem grant you much, much Seat HaShemaya. And please feel free to reach out to me on Rebbe at com. R-E-B-B-E at the schmooze.com. Much, much, that's Thank you for joining.